John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world was made through him. And though the world was made through him, sorry, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all that... To all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born of nat- not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. May God bless his word. So I'd like to invite Jono up this morning, so let's give him a warm welcome. Thanks, Nick. All right. It's uh, wonderful to be here, and it's, uh, it's wonderful to have this privilege to be able to share God's Word with all of us uh, this morning. Uh, one thing to say, I think last time um, on the recording, the volume was adjusted for Joe's volume. And so he speaks really loudly, and so I came across really, really softly. So uh, hopefully that's not the case uh, today. Uh, Now, for those of you who've been here in the last couple of weeks, uh, you'll know that we've been loosely following uh, the the series of the Gospel Project, which the kids are actually doing upstairs as well. And uh, so for those of you who do have kids uh, upstairs, it will be interesting to see if what we learn today marries up uh, with what they're being taught in Sunday school. Um, Two weeks ago, Joe uh, preached a sermon entitled, The Prophets Who Spoke, Uh, and they talked about Jesus' birth and his life and how hundreds of years ago his coming was prophesied, the the way that he would arrive, the the things that he would do, uh, who he would be, and where he would be born and where he would live. Uh, And then last week, uh, Joe preached on the five words that the angel spoke to Mary, the words of favor, of comfort, of vocation, of explanation and assurance. And for those of you who were there, you obviously didn't forget to do your homework, which was to dig into God's Word and find out God's favor for you. I look forward to hearing how you went with that. Uh, This week, uh, we're taking a look at Christmas. And that should be, of course, no surprise to any of you. Uh, But perhaps it'll be a little bit different to what you might expect a sermon to be about. Uh, So we're going to start off with a little small exercise Uh, And your exercise is to finish this sentence. Christmas is all about... Christmas is all about... If you had to finish that sentence, I want you to turn to your neighbor and finish that sentence. Christmas is all about... what? (laughs) I'm already hearing some bad answers. (laughs) All right.
So just by hearing some of these answers, I can tell that some of them are not quite right. Um, now, in a typical kind of Christmas sermon, you might expect to hear certain types of things. Right? You might hear the mention of, say, angels or shepherds or wise men or, you know, the star or, you know, a manger, maybe Joseph and Mary. Um, but actually, I don't think I heard any of those things, which, fair enough, you know, he only had one sentence to explain what Christmas was all about. Now, if I had to do it in one succinct sentence, then I might say something like this. Christmas is all about the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's really the only correct answer. So if you said that, hands up. Anyone, anyone get that? No, okay. Um, so deduct marks if you actually didn't mention Jesus at all or Jesus the Christ. Uh, he very much is central to Christmas, isn't he? You see, Christmas is all about the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in some ways, this description, however short it might be, is very similar to how the Gospel writer John describes Christmas. While we have the accounts of Matthew and Luke who go into great detail as to the narrative of Jesus' birth, John chooses to cut right to the point. He explains what really matters in just four words. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the last verse that Nick read for us, it starts off with, The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. In John's words, Christmas is about God becoming man. And that's what we're going to look at today. Hopefully that's what the kids upstairs are also looking at. And if they're not, well, it's too late now. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that today and this sermon would all be about Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help me to decrease, that you might increase. I pray that you would be glorified this morning. And Father, I thank you that your word will go forth that as I faithfully preach, Lord, that you would be with me, that your Holy Spirit would give me the words to say, and that you would glorify yourself. Father, I thank you that your word accomplishes the purposes that you have for it and does never return to you void. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to be clear, if you went to a random person off the street and you told them that Christmas is all about the word become flesh, then there's a good chance that they would have no idea what you're talking about. We do have to cover a little bit of groundwork to fully appreciate what John is communicating to us through his gospel. And we're going to start in verses 1 to 5. Uh, just in general, if you want to stay in John chapter 1, then uh, we'll be bouncing around uh, through John chapter 1, the first 14 verses. Hopefully you won't be too distracted by the large Polynesian man's voice coming from upstairs. All right, the voice of God, John 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning. Those three words are the same words used in Genesis 1.1. They refer to the beginning of creation, or the world as we know it. You see, it's not referring to the beginning of God, because God doesn't have a beginning. God is infinite, and He has always been. He doesn't have a beginning because He was never created. Only created things have beginnings. For example, mankind has a beginning. The universe has a beginning. Time has a beginning. Angels and demons all have beginnings because all of these things were created by God. 
God, on the other hand, was not created. He has always existed and exists beyond and outside of time and space. That's one of the immutable properties that makes God who he is, God. And we call this pre-existence. We say that God is pre-existent. Before creation, he is and was. He is the uncreated one. So at the beginning of all, all created things was the word. Now that is to say that the word was already very much present at the point of creation. Grammatically, here being used is the imperfect tense, also known as the past progressive tense. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, if I say, I was preaching five minutes ago, what I actually mean in the imperfect tense is that I was preaching five minutes ago and I still am preaching now. I am continuing to preach even though I was preaching. Hopefully that makes some sense. Likewise, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, but the Word is also continuing to be with God and continues to be God. Perhaps put more simply, although technically not quite correct, the Word was God and the Word is God. Now what exactly is this Word? Of course, we know that this Word is in fact Jesus. Well, naturally we ask then, why doesn't John just say Jesus? In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Well, there's a lot to it, but the word here that's being used is the term logos in Greek. Uh, it's where we derive the English word logic. Uh, for the Greeks, the logos was the reasoning about the world, about life and its origins. It was the rational principle or force which governed the universe. If I said today that we're going to read God's Word, or we're going to read a passage from God's Word, then we automatically think of the Word of God as the Bible. And of course, that's correct. The Bible is God's Word in written form. But as well, there is also God's spoken Word. In the beginning, God spoke. He spoke creation into being. He said, let there be light in Genesis 1-3, and there was light. Hebrews 1-1 tells us that God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. You see, the word of God, whether written or spoken, reveals to us who God is. A person's words tell us who they are, what they think. Our words allow us to express ourselves and to communicate the things that are on our minds with those around us. Without words, it's very difficult, practically impossible even, to truly get to know someone really well. The Word of God is God expressing Himself and revealing Himself to us. He reveals to us His thoughts and His mind to us through His Word. For the Jewish people, the Logos was synonymous with the mind of God. And that's the meaning that John is trying to capture here. It's encompassed both by the Word which God created the world with, as well as God's divine law, which the Jews devoted their whole life to. It was far more than just a way to reason about the universe or some impersonal force. The Logos was as separable from God as any person can be separated from their own mind. And that is to say, they are one and the same. And John tells us that this Logos is not a what, but a who, the person of Jesus Christ. And what is clear from verse 1 is that this Logos was with God in the beginning, and that this Logos was also God himself. In verse 2, we discover that the word indeed is a person because he uses the personal pronoun he. He was with God in the beginning. John makes it even clearer in verse 14 that the word is, of course, Jesus himself. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus is God's word with a capital W. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God's word incarnate, that is, God in human form. He is also God's one and only Son, who was sent by the Father, both of whom are full of grace and truth. And there is so much truth to unpack in just these few verses. Your first question might be, how is it possible that Jesus is God and yet is also with God at the same time? Now, to answer this question, we need to understand the doctrinal truth of the Trinity. And here I admit that I borrow from far more learned sources than myself. Uh, we don't have all that much time today, uh, so hopefully this summary will be adequate for today's purposes. Now, the Trinity explains that there is only one God who is three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of these persons in themselves is fully God. The word Trinity in itself is never used in the Bible, but the doctrine of the Trinity is observed throughout Scripture. Some examples, in Genesis 1.26, says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. You see, God actually refers to himself in the plural form as us and our. In the Gospels, when Jesus is being baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, while God the Father affirms as a voice from heaven, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Clearly, there are three distinct persons. That is, the Father is not the Son, who is not the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct people, persons. In the Great Commission, we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are clearly distinguished as three different persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. However, they have the same name, the name of God. Notice that it says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They share the same name. And they are, cle they are also clearly on the same level of deity. We only baptize in the name of God, not in any creature's name. In terms of divine attributes and nature, all three are equal. They're equal in power, they're equal in love, mercy, justice, holiness, and so on. They all equally are 100% God, and yet they are their own conscious persons. The three exist in complete unity with one another as one harmonious being who share the same divine will. Perhaps the best way to describe the Trinity is to say that God is one in essence, but three in person. The three persons of the Godhead are one in essence, in that they are all essentially God, with the same divine attributes, nature, and will, but they are three in person, in that they are their own persons, with their own distinct roles and consciousness. This brief explanation of the Trinity hopefully helps us to explain how Jesus can both be God, because he is God in essence, while at the same time he is with God, as he is with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Now, your second natural question might be, if Jesus is God, then how can he become flesh? Wouldn't he then cease to be God himself? The Bible again describes to us this doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Jesus is not half man, half God. In the same sense that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each fully God and not one-third of God, Jesus is fully God and fully man. 
He's not just a human with some supernatural abilities, but neither is he God pretending to be a man in human flesh. He's both completely God and completely man. In Colossians 2.9, Paul puts it like this, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All of God is in Christ in bodily form. Jesus' divine nature, his attributes, his will and his mind, and his essence reside in Jesus, the God-man. But let me make it clear as well, Jesus was not always a man as he is now. He always was and he still is God the Son, but just over 2,000 years ago, he became a man. He became flesh when he was born. Perhaps more accurately, Jesus being God took on the nature of man in conjunction with his already divine nature. We sing about this in the famous carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says this, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. You see, Jesus became God in human flesh. As a human, Jesus was born as a baby. He grew into an adult, and he fully experienced the complete range of human emotions and human experiences. He knew what it was to be happy, to be sad, amazed, angry, lonely, tired, hungry, thirsty, and even tempted. Of course, he also knew what it was to be betrayed, to be abandoned, to be accused, threatened, humiliated, mocked, beaten, and scorned. He was susceptible to being wounded, and he bled, and he even died as a man. Because he was the perfect man, however, Jesus never sinned, nor was he ever guilty of not perfectly loving God or others. As God, Jesus exercised divine authority to teach, to heal the sick or lame, to cast out demons, to command nature, to resurrect people from the dead, and to forgive sin. He is both the position of authority as the Son of God, as well as the divine power to perform such miraculous acts of God. Because Jesus knows what it is to be fully man, he truly is Emmanuel, that is, God with us. Not only is he always present with us spiritually, but he can also fully empathize with our human experience. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You see, Jesus knows the temptation of man, and yet he never sinned. Again, in John 2.25, it says this about Jesus, that, they did not need, that he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. See, some people have this idea that God is like a giant clockmaker, as though he wound up the universe and then he stood back and simply let it run its course. But that statement couldn't be further from the truth. We can be sure that God sympathizes with us because he experienced it firsthand as a man. As God, he knows every hair on your head. He knows every thought in your mind and every desire of your heart. But as a man, Jesus knows intimately what it's like to suffer, to grieve, to be disappointed and be rejected. He understands our human condition and he knows each one of us inside and out. And that's because Jesus is both fully God and fully man. In verse 3, we also learn that through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Paul says something very similar in Colossians 1.16. It says this, 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus created everything. There's not a single thing that's been made that was made without him. If it's something on earth, then he created it. If it's not on the earth because it's in the heavens, then he created that too. He created everything visible and everything invisible, and that is to say, everything. You don't need to go far to find evidence that this world was created by an intelligent designer. Uh, You may have heard of this uh, mysterious monolithic structure that was found in the desert of Utah. I think there's a picture of it. Uh, It's effectively this long slab of polished metal standing upright at 10 to 12 feet tall, 2 to 3 meters, in the middle of the desert. Uh, And it basically just looks like this large, polished, rectangular-looking pole. Uh, Now, there's been lots and lots of speculation about how this pole got embedded in the desert. Uh, And perhaps the best theory is that it's a leftover prop that was used in filming a science fiction movie that was done in the area sometime in the past. Uh, Other people think that there was a sculptor who kind of made similar artworks and left it there as a prank. Um, yet still others believe that aliens put it there. And, uh, and as outlandish as that theory might be, there are some people who really believe that. But do you know what nobody thinks? Nobody thinks that, oh, there's just a random bit of metal in the desert, and, it was, and it's there by random chance. Because of millions of years of random chance, it just appeared. It's an artifact of the process of random chaos. You see, nobody thinks that. Not even the crazy alien people believe that. Now, why is that? Why is it that nobody believes that this is there by random chance? Well, obviously, it's not. Because random chaos results in just that, random chaos. This is order. This is uniformity. Someone clearly designed, created, polished, and embedded that piece of metal in the desert. Again, take a look at Stonehenge if you've ever been there. Nobody in their right mind believes that Stonehenge is the result of random chance, and yet it's literally a bunch of rocks stacked on top of each other. If I think about how much more infinitely complex a bird's wing is that enables it to fly, or if I think about the intricate detail involved in enabling the human eye to see, or even if I just look at a pineapple's skin with a perfectly tessellating pattern of hexagons, I can only reasonably conclude that there has to be some sort of intelligent mind behind such an orderly design. If a lump of metal in the desert or a bunch of rocks in a circle can only be reasonably explained by the intervention of intelligent beings, then there can be no doubt that the bird, the human eye, and the pineapple are overwhelming evidence of an intelligent creator. When I look at trees or animals or beaches in the ocean or mountains and valleys, I witness the incredible order the intricate detail, the mesmerizing beauty of God's hand in his creation. The Bible tells us that's because God created everything. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. But not only did God create everything, he created it all with purpose. Everything is created, we're told, through him and for him. In what sense is this true? Well, Psalm 27, 1-4 tells us that it's all created for his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. 
Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. You see, all of creation speaks to the glory of God. We are surrounded by the magnificent display of God's incredible creative power, the heavens in all its brilliance, the depths of the oceans with all of its mysteries, the vastness of the deserts, the rolling hills, the sweeping plains. We see God's meticulous care in providing for every living creature on earth, such as the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. Scientists marvel at the mind-boggling precision with, with, with which the earth can support life and the incredibly diverse and yet intricate complexity of practically every living, living being. No wonder Paul says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his internal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The purpose of creation for Jesus is to reveal God's glory, as all of it points us to God's Son, whom it was made by and made for. In verse 4 and 5, we also learn about Jesus, that in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Notice that this verse doesn't just say that Jesus is or was alive, although that obviously is true as well. It says that in him was life. The NLT translates the same verse this way. It says, The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Perhaps a simpler way would be to say that only with Jesus is there true life. You see, Jesus wasn't given life. He wasn't granted life. He wasn't made alive by something, some cause, or some being. No, Jesus is himself life. The term that we use here to describe this is self-existent. We've learned that he is pre-existent, meaning he existed before creation, but he is also self-existent, meaning he exists independently of any other being or cause. He in himself is the source of life and is also life itself. You see, atheists believe that there was nothing, and then there was everything, and then there was life. But as Christians, we believe God always existed, and he is the source of life, and he created everything and gave life to all living beings. A bad analogy that I couldn't think of any better would be like saying that Jesus is like the batteries in a torch. Without the batteries, there is no light. But at the same time, Jesus is also the LED or the bulb in the torch that produces the light. Without him, there's no way to power the light, and even if you were somehow to be able to manage that, then no light would be produced. Without the batteries or the light source, the torch is useless. It can never fulfill its intended purpose. Jesus is both the source and the light of life. Without him, there is only darkness. Uh, there's an old bumper sticker that you may have seen it says, no Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no life. Now, I didn't actually repeat myself twice there. It's, the first one is, if you can't see the slide, it's K-N-O-W, Jesus. K-N-O-W, life. Can-no Jesus, can-no life. <laughs> no Jesus, and no Jesus, no life. It's really hard to explain audibly, but um, you get the idea. Sometimes it's in the other order as well. Sometimes it's N-O Jesus, N-O life. Anyway, um, and this is kind of what the verse is ultimately saying, right? If you know Jesus, then you'll get to know real life. 
But if you don't have Jesus, you'll never have life. Only Jesus, only in Jesus is there real life that offers real hope, or as this verse puts it, light to all mankind. And the life that John is referring to isn't just about being physically alive. He's not talking about just being able to breathe and, and have a functioning brain. He's actually talking about spiritual life. You see, there are many who are physically alive, and there's many who have lived physically, but only those who know Jesus can know true spiritual, eternal life. True life, spiritual life, is life eternal, life everlasting, a life of abundance, a God-pleasing, God-glorifying life with the assured hope of heaven. 1 John 5, 11-12 says this, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see, eternal life is found in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's both the source of life and the light of life. In verse 5, John 1, verse 5, we also learn that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light here is a metaphor for the life that Jesus offers us. The darkness represents our sin that separates us from God. Therefore, if we put that together, the verse is saying that the life of Jesus pierces through the darkness of our sin, and sin is defeated by it. Darkness cannot remain in the presence of light. Even a small candle will drive out the darkness from a room. Jesus even says of himself in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, light illuminates. Light enables us to see clearly and reveals the way to go. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and thought, I don't need to turn the light on. I'll just get to the bathroom without it. And then you walked into something. Well, that's kind of what life is like when we don't have Jesus. We're stumbling around, perhaps thinking that we're achieving this and that. But in actuality, we don't even know that we're blind. Because Jesus is the light of the world, and he enables us to see clearly. John 12, 35 to 36 says this. Jesus told them, them being the crowds, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, because darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. You see, Jesus tells the crowds, perhaps a little cryptically, that they need to walk in the light, otherwise darkness will overtake them. How are they to walk in the light? Jesus tells us in verse 36 that we do this by believing in the light, by believing in Jesus, so that we can become children of the light. We can have the life that Jesus offers by believing and trusting in him. His life alone has overcome the darkness of our sin that has separated us from God. Continuing on in verses 6 to 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now the author of the Gospel of John here talks about another John, John the Baptist, who was sent as a witness to Jesus. Later in verses 29 and verse 37, John the Baptist says this about Jesus. He says, look, 
the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. See, John the Baptist's role was to prepare the way for Jesus, to be the herald of Jesus' arrival, and to point people to him. Verses 9 to 11 then says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You see, when Jesus appeared, when he came to the earth as flesh, he brought light and hope into a dark and lost world. Like turning on a light in a dark room, Jesus brought renewed hope to the world. But the nature of sin is such that not everyone recognized him. Even though he created us, sin blinded people to the light of Jesus. The world did not recognize their own creator. Today, the world at large still does not recognize the creator. And worst of all, even his own people, the Jewish people, those who had all the prophecies and scripture and history and knowledge of God, did not receive him. He came for his own people, and yet they rejected him. Along with the Romans, they crucified him. But thank God for verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, there were some who did receive him. There were some who chose to believe in his name, and to those who did, he gave the right to become children of God. How do we receive him? How do we accept this new birthright or receive Jesus and his offer of new life by believing in his name? Believing in his name isn't just believing that his name actually is Jesus. To believe in his name is to believe him for everything that he is as he's revealed himself to us. It's to believe that he is who he says he is, that is, the creator, the logos of God, the light of the world, the son of God, and the only one who can forgive you of your sin. It's only by believing in Jesus that we can have the right to become children of God. You'll also notice that the way to become a child of God is not to try and do as many good things as you possibly can. It doesn't mean you go and read the Bible or go to church or give money to the poor or try to help as many as you can in need. You see, none of those things make you any more or any less a child of God. In fact, nothing we do makes us acceptable to God as though we could somehow do enough good to undo all of our sin. It is only by the non-work of believing and trusting in Jesus, what we call faith, that we can be cleansed of our sin and be given new life as children of God. That's what it means to be born again. When we choose to place our trust in him, we are no longer just children to our earthly parents. We're now transplanted into the family of God. God is our heavenly father, We are co-heirs with Christ, and the Holy Spirit lives within us. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. Jesus, who is himself God, who pre-existed creation and in himself is self-existent, who is the light of life, who has overcome darkness, entered into his creation by becoming flesh, God in human form. Christmas is all about the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Perhaps the most amazing thing about Jesus' birth is, is not the prophecies or miracles or angels or that he was born of a virgin. The most profound thing about Jesus' birth is that, is that it meant that he could now die. You see, as God, Jesus would never die, but as a man, he could. It's true that as a man, Jesus revealed to us more about who God is uh, than any text ever could. It's true that by becoming a man, we can now know for certain that God fully empathizes with our humanity. It's true that as a man, Jesus taught better and performed more miracles than any other man ever has, or I believe ever will. And it's true that as a man, he showed us the perfect example of how to live, how to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's also true that he discipled believers who would spread the gospel throughout the world. But if that's all that becoming a man would do for us, it would not have been enough. The word had to become flesh because the word had to die for our sin. Philippians 2, 6-8, speaking of Jesus. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I think the most mind-blowing thing about the word become flesh, about Christmas, is that Jesus did it so that he could die for us who rejected him. The source and light of life, through whom and for whom all things were created, the Logos of God made himself nothing and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's so much richness packed into the very few verses that we've just looked at. And there, of course, is much more that we could talk about, but let me just conclude and, and wrap up by suggesting just two ways that we can respond to God's word today. The first is this. Let's take some time this week to just be in awe of Jesus. The sooner, the better. Don't let the rush of this season or holidays or the deadlines of work and whatever else might distract you, don't let any of that stop you from meeting and worshipping Jesus. Let the truths that maybe you already know, maybe you've heard it a hundred times before, let those truths fall afresh and excite your heart and mind as though you were hearing them for the very first time once again. And don't do it just because I'm saying that it's a good thing to do, but rather because of everything that we've just learned that God has done for you. Would you make an immovable appointment to meet with the Logos of God even now? Discover for yourself, experience, taste, and see for yourself firsthand the glory of the one and only Son, full of grace and truth. That's the first. And the second is this. Let's not be ashamed of who Jesus is to us. Who cares if other people think we're a little bit weird? Let's not keep this truth to ourselves. If you're a believer, then you know that God himself literally became a man to die for you. If we believe that's true, then surely we cannot keep this good news to ourselves. May we shine the light of Jesus in this dark world, that they might recognize him through us, turn from their sin, and believe in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the Word become flesh. Father, I pray that this Christmas really would be about Jesus, about this Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, 
and his birth. Father, I pray that the truths that we've heard today, that we would allow them to sink in. I pray, God, that we would meditate upon them and that we would allow them to change the way that we think and view the world. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are and all that you've done for us. Father, we are amazed by all the things that you've done, that you are our creator, God, that you existed before creation, that in you is life. Father, we cannot even imagine, we cannot comprehend your greatness and your goodness goodness and just all that you are. Father, I pray that we would stand in awe of you today. I pray that we would stand in awe of you every day, that as we consider you, as we ponder you, as we think about you, that God, we'd be amazed yet again by all that you've done for us. And Father, that you would send your son to die for us. Lord, we are, we are grateful. We, we cannot express in words how much that means to us. Father, I pray that we would live lives that are in, in light of this fact of all that you've done for us. Father, help us to do this and recognize you for who you truly are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, church. We'll see you next week.